How you doing? Welcome to yet another episode of Bodywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. Hey, what do I look like? A mook to you or something? I'm one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... I didn't even know you spoke Greek. <laughs> Andrew Roger Carson, that would be me. Here we are, we're coming in for episode... 18 bum 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 or episode 17.1 if you want to be a dick about it yeah because last week we had the absolutely amazing richard mirishon talking about his career but unfortunately there was too much to fit into one episode so we've had to break it up into two separate ones so here you are you're going to be hearing the remainder of his interview later indeed you will uh, this is going to be a, a very special episode, a bit longer as well. Get yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of stuff to cover today, but I think we have to start the week off with two stories in particular. Mm-hmm. And one, the world's favourite uh, web-spinning superhero. Yes. Uh, yesterday, there was a early release version of the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer. There were no finished visual effects in there. There was a great big watermark that was right across the middle of the video. We'll get onto that in a second. And it was filmed on a mobile phone with someone recording another mobile phone where the video was playing. So as you can imagine, it was massive potato quality. But I think mainly because of that, or maybe it was just ready to go out anyway, but Disney have clapped back today, releasing the official trailer with everything that's done and finalised. So there's a lot to go into there. But before we talk about the trailer as it actually is, I think we should talk about the the actual leak because I think that someone has got their hands onto this trailer and has just gone nuts with it. I don't actually think that the VFX artist whose name is going across the middle of the trailer actually leaked it themselves because that would be career suicide. It would be. Um, You know, you're not Alfred Molina and can get away with it. No. So... I think, uh, I mean, one, it's refreshing that someone other than Tom Holland actually spilled the beans. Yeah, or Mark Ruffalo. Or Mark Ruffalo. Notorious for it. Those infamous uh, Marvel actors. I don't think it falls into the fault of the actual person, but I think that person has probably had the biggest grilling on a Monday morning that anyone has ever seen. Uh, And I think it is going to come down to some kind of data breach theft you know a hacking of person's computer who may have been working on it and they've seen a file that probably says uh trailer version etc etc and basically just stole it yeah because if you're working as a vfx artist for one of the biggest companies in the world with a massive amount of ndas up your ass you're not going to put a gun to your career's head by releasing this yourself are you no and I would hate to have been that person when that was released. That's the one company, probably the one figurehead you don't want coming down on you. They've done so well to keep us all on the edge of our seat waiting for this trailer. And it was being released this week anyway. Mm-hmm. To be honest, anyone who watched it, you're an idiot. You are a complete tool. I did actually watch it, so lay it on And me, you're on. a complete tool. I've done a lot of writing up on the stuff about... Um, data hacks and leaks and all stuff like that. I am a person who is vehemently against it. It's the same thing when, uh, was it X-Men Origins Wolverine? A work print of that got released online way back in, I think it was like 2009. Yeah, there was virtually no finished special effects in that at all. 
what are you gaining from watching that? You're seeing an incomplete version of a movie. Call me old-fashioned. You're old-fashioned. Yeah, I like seeing stuff that actually, you know, is finished and completed and is ready to be shown and and marvelled at, no pun intended. On the other hand, though, I can have a few amusing moments, like when the trailer for The Mummy dropped and it didn't have the finished audio. So you just had those isolated Tom Cruise screams and shouts <laughs> with no VFX. It was just... Ah! 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 <laughs> that, that was actually quite amusing. So I think that time, that time the leakers uh, actually came up with something good. Although I think, wasn't that the actual studio that released that? And they just made a balls up the first one and then they went, oh no, we shouldn't release that one. Possibly. I don't remember that. I'll choose to believe it. I'm not fully convinced that that is Doctor Strange. Why not? I'm going to go with a wild theory here because it seems incredibly out of character for Doctor Strange to actually do what he does in this trailer. Really? It seems perfectly to me because he's he's basically Tony Stark, but with magic. I am going to go on a line that this is actually Mephisto in disguise. As the trailer nicely points out in one scene... A sign saying devil in disguise alluding to Peter Parker. Uh-huh. And you know what Marvel is like. They love to throw those little touches in there. And something didn't sit right with me about the Doctor Strange character. Okay. You know, and sure the mannerisms are there, but I have a feeling that this might be Mephisto because in the comic books, Spider Man did initially make the deal with Mephisto, not Doctor Strange. Right, well, in that case, that would then tie very neatly into WandaVision as well, wouldn't it? And Doctor Strange in a Multiverse of Madness, of which Mephisto was a major character. Okay, well, this is definitely a rabbit hole that we're going to have to look forward to as uh, we get drip-fed teaser trailers and trailers for the teaser trailers and then trailers (laughs) that are then teasing the, the teaser trailers that are then for the trailers. Well, it is something to keep you wondering. Yes. And speaking of wondering, Steve. Oh, that was good. That's good. That was good. We need to get on to what's in the box from last week. Yes, we do. Um, yeah, usually we kick off with this, what we had all this Spider-Man talk. But yeah, uh, last week I watched The Wanderers, which was a 1979 movie about gangs in New York. It's based on the book by uh, Richard Price, who, as far as I'm aware, is kind of semi-autobiographical insofar as they were gangs in his particular neighbourhood, and I think he kind of based them on there. It was directed by Philip Kaufman, and uh, I'm not entirely sure where I sit with this one. Ooh. I'm not, because the best way to describe this movie is it's like Grease meets Animal House. (laughs) Okay. You've got all the gangs, all the hair going on, all the 1950s music, but there's also tons of swearing and really kind of explicit sex references, even though there's not explicit sex acts going on. But I mean, like the opening is straight out of the end of Kentucky Fried Movie. Right. Like the TV, the news is on in the background, and they're having sex. But uh, it, it's a weird movie because there's, it feels a lot of the time like it's improv theatre, as if the director basically said, "Okay, guys, here we're gonna go. We're gonna do this scene, and you've got a couple of lines that you need to get out, and the rest of it just kind of shout all over each other." 
there are moments where I was kind of siding with it, and it's the more quieter, measured moments, such as towards the end, the main character. Richie is basically cheated on uh, on his girlfriend, uh, Despy, with, uh, with Karen Allen's character. Despy is like the daughter of a local gang leader, kind of a mafioso. He ends up having to marry her because she's pregnant, but there's a wonderful moment where the two of them are on the street and they're watching the breaking news about the assassination of JFK, and it's kind of intimating that there's this change, this shift going on, moving from childhood into adulthood, and you start to realise, okay, all the world doesn't revolve around these few little square blocks, and that there's more out there, and things need to be taken seriously. And then other moments as well, such as the, the parental issues that are going on. But throughout it all, it felt like a movie that couldn't sit still, and yet dragged at the same time. Every single scene was full of constant talking over each other, and people acting about and, and moving around really animatedly. And yet every single scene seemed to go on for an age before anything of even any remarkable consequences said. And that's why I kind of likened it to Animal House, because that's got lots of non sequiturs that are going on in it, which don't ultimately add to the overall plot, but they are nice little moments. Well, it was the same year. Yeah, I and Karen Allen was in both of them. Uh-huh. But no, I mean, I could, I could fire out a load of facts of like uh, from this. Like, you know, it's got Ken Forey in it. Uh, the guy that plays Terror, Erlen Van Linth, played Dynamo in Running Man. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. Yeah. Oh, mate, there was no... As soon as he came on screen, I was like, I know him from somewhere. But yeah. He was Dynamo. Um, and like is the tradition for every teenage film, none of the actors in it are below 30. But yeah, it didn't kind of sit with me. And I don't know why. And it's it's so hard to put an actual finger on what it is that I didn't like. But I, it just didn't sit well. Well, they were all based on real gangs. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it is really autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the biggest highlight is uh, don't fuck with the Wongs. Yep. <laughs> yes, you had the, the feared Ducky Boys, of which mm-hmm. Ace Freely... Mm-hmm. was actually a real-life member of the Ducky Boys yep. in his youth. He's the Kiss guitarist. Yes, yes, in case any of you savages don't know history. Or care about Kiss. I mean, I, I grew up with this film. I think it was among uh, an entire box of movies that I received as a kid, along with The Warriors and a few other movies. The only thing that I've got to really complain about in the movie was Pee-Wee's accent, mm. which yeah. was just... <laughs> uh, it's not good. No, it's proper hardcore, either Bronx or Queens, that kind of, Hey, what are you talking about over here? <laughs> this guy said that you look like a dick with no balls. It's like, oh, God. No, shut up, please. <laughs> it's absolutely awful. It's awful, and it's also a little bit uncomfortable because the actress who who played Pee Wee, Linda Mans, um, Linda Mans, uh, she was old enough. But there's a scene where she's kissing Terror, and he's like about he looks anyway in in the movie. He looks like he's about seven foot, and she looks like she's about four foot. And it's honestly a little bit uncomfortable to watch, not only because of the fact that you know. He's he's not an attractive man. Let's let's put that out there. But the fact that she's so small, yeah, it's it's it it does leave uh, 
not much to the imagination, I guess. No. So um, you weren't a fan of the Wanderers, really? No, not really. I mean, I think towards the very, very end, when things started to calm down a bit, I started to enjoy it more. I mean, a lot of it just seems to be based around, oh, gang warfare, and then you realise most of the gang warfare, realistically, is all about a football game. That took three days to film. Well, that doesn't surprise me, actually, because I did do a, an American football film, but I'm not going to talk about that more here. Um, just like everyone else doesn't. Yeah, the latter end of it seemed to resonate more, but the beginning is just this awful mess of cacophony and swearing, and you could say that it's representative of the way that kids talk, but ultimately it's just too much, and it buries a lot of the characters in, in it, because they all kind of congeal in the soup of swearing and greased hair and yellow jackets, and they all become an identical copy of each other, trying to outdo each other with the swearing and the shouting and... You know what this movie needed? What? Don Harvey and Kathy Bates. <laughs> It'd have been a classic. Yeah. So, yes. Okay. Well, that was the what's in the box for uh, The Wanderers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this week you're going to have something a lot more upbeat. Oh, God, I hope so. You can hope so. Yeah. But while we celebrate The Wanderers, we've also got a notion to some anniversaries this week. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. Now, did you really just throw up, because I know you've not been feeling well, or was that your actual country and western poke for the week? No, that, that, was, that was my kind of like yokel, yuck, 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 kind of voice. You sound like Goofy. Garbage. Well, it's a shame. It's a shame you didn't go. Are you a handsome stranger? Because that would have played incredibly well into this week's anniversary section. It's known as, in some circles, as the last of the classic Schwarzenegger action movies of the nineties. Twenty-five years ago, Eraser was released. Oh, one of Bill's favorites. One of Bill's favorites. It's one of his yeah. favorites so much he wouldn't even do a show on it. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad film. Actually, it's 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 just fun. It's a fun Arnie movie. It, it's what it is. There was a kind of weirdness of the Arnie movies in the mid to late nineties because you had stuff like um, Last Boy Scout, which I thought not Last Boy Scout. Last Boy um, Scout. No, that was a weird movie for Arnie. He didn't <laughs> yes, look anything like himself in it. Yeah, he shaved his head and everything. No, I mean Last Action Hero, which yes. I think is a massively underrated movie. Which did not get his dues and was way ahead of it. its time. I, I love, love that, that movie. movie. But yeah, you had stuff like that and The Sixth Day. And it all kind of had this Ugh. weird kind of late 90s shine. But it just made it look like it was like a TV movie. It didn't have that kind of filmic feel to it that even his early stuff did. And they were probably just shot on really, really cheap Dirty sixteen mil cameras or somewhere. No, I didn't mind this. I mean, the the crocodile bit or the alligator bit, whatever they were, that was featured in the trailer looked awful. Oh, the infamous scene where he shoots an alligator and calls him luggage. Yeah, and the way I said it was probably more funny than it is in the movie. Your luggage. He's got his moments, so he's got a few little nice little action scenes. What was it? What was the name of the the woman in Vanessa? Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams, yeah. I thought she was better than your average female protagonist in one of these movies. Well, the thing that always sticks in my mind 
is how the BBFC screwed up with this movie to an extent that I have never, ever seen. So there's a scene where Arnie, uh, James Kahn and Kahn's sidekicks, henchmen, whatever you call them. Nick Chinland is one of them as well. Nick Chinland was one yep. of them, yes. Hi, Nick. We know you listen. Yeah. They go to an alleged witness's house to go and safeguard them. And they get into this kind of gunfight with these people that are there. And Arnie ends up like chasing them down throughout the house and shooting them while James Khan, spoiler alert, actually kills the witness upstairs. But for some strange reason, on the VHS rental release of this movie when it came out, the editing was all over the place. So they'd spliced yeah. scenes and the music and everything, and it became the most choppiest scene you will ever watch. Do you remember it? I remember it, yeah. You could get away with it if the music was edited right. But it suddenly just cuts off and then starts up again. And then there's a really obviously completely different piece of music in between that just shows up that it's just been absolutely butchered. I saw it on, yeah. I think it was um, Stars mm-hmm. in LA. Because I go there to watch all my Warner Brothers movies from the 90s that were killed by the BBFC. <laughs> you can just put them on Stars, 10 o'clock in the morning, watch Under Siege 1, 2... On Deadly Ground, if you're really desperate. And Eraser was on. It was either that or watch Volcano for like the 40,000th time. So I watched Eraser and for the first time actually saw it the way it was actually really edited. And I was like, this just highlights more how bad a job that was done. And I don't think we've ever got an answer of why. Was there anything particularly graphic? or No, it wasn't anything particularly graphic. But the BBFC were real bastards to Warner Brothers releases mm. because anything violent was cut out of them. I'm convinced Under Siege 2 was only 10 minutes long because <laughs> right? the amount of stuff cut out of that um, what else was cut that was majorly cut? I mean Under Siege, a lot of Steven Seagal's films were seriously cut. Yeah, the first one was without question. The most noticeable one, Hard to Kill was one of them and Out for Justice especially. Mm. Right? It was amazing how much stuff was cut out of this thing. It must have reduced the running time by a good seven to eight minutes. Yeah, Eraser was the biggest telling sign of it because there was no effort put in whatsoever. No, it was shocking. It's absolutely and, shocking. Uh, yeah, otherwise it's you know it's a fun film. It's directed by Chuck Russell. Right, I think that it, there was some history behind that movie that hopefully one day we'll all hear about. Um, I guarantee you at this point next week, I'll get a WhatsApp. <laughs> You will do. You'll be like, oh, I will do. know. Yes. So 25 years old for Eraser. And uh, 15 years ago, Steve, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to talk about this because it's a film that I didn't really like. A movie called You, Me and Dupree was released. What was the other one where Jim Carrey had a split personality? Me, Myself and Irene. Me, Myself and Irene. That's the one. Yeah. No, You, Me and Dupree. I've, I've not seen it. No, because it just seems like rom-com shite. Okay, well, this is the movie where basically Matt Dillon and Kate Hudson, you know, they're newlyweds, they've just got married, and their best man is Owen Wilson. Wow. You you know what shit is going to happen. Basically, he decides to stay with them, uh, much to their annoyance, blah, 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 ends up with them falling out, and then Owen Wilson suddenly changes his ways, and they get back together and stuff like that. I'm sorry, but I, I just literally looked it up here. Because I couldn't remember who the bride was. I think at the end of the day, it was supposed to be Rachel McAdams and Ewan McGregor were the original choices for those roles. And mm. thank God they didn't do it. But it's great because 
I kind of came onto IMDb. Yeah. And you can do this at home. And the first image that comes up is of Kate Hudson's ass in <laughs> her panties. Okay, so she's... Uh, so That there's... apparently is the highlight to open up on <laughs> for you, me and Debris. But yeah. I got forced to watch this movie. It it's kind of runs that formula, and I'm sure they had fun making it. It's not a standout. It's it's kind of gets lost in those types of movies that are just you know always there. Yeah, they're those kind of movies you can tell what's going to happen within the first five minutes of watching it. I, it, it basically sounds like okay, I know he's got a similar name, but he sounds like Marley and Me, only with Owen Wilson instead of a dog. You know, he comes in. And he ruins their lives. Oh, but then he actually manages to bring them together at the end and everybody's happy. Oh, wait, but there's a comedy coda at the end. Oh, yes. But you know what the shocking thing about it is? What? It's directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. Seriously? Seriously. Oh, God, boys. Those responsible for the biggest movie of all time, Avengers Endgame, directed this movie. And the fact that no, they never cast Kate Hudson, Owen Wilson, and Matt Dillon in their Marvel movies. I might say that. Maybe they just try and forget about this. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's probably not a bad film. It probably just, you know, from my remembrance of it, I just remember that Owen Wilson was just playing that Wedding Crashes style role. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot, a lot knows I love myself some Owen Wilson. I think he's just, he, you know, he's just feels like the kind of person that you could very happily go for a pint with. And I think that's a good way of thinking about people. You know, could I go for a pint with this person? Yes, I could. But he doesn't really have a massive acting range, does he? It depends. I mean, he was brilliant in a movie called The Minus Man, which was an actual serious thriller. You know, he's he's tried his hand at action in Behind Enemy Lines, which was basically Bat 21 with the roles reversed. Yeah. If Owen Wilson was replaced by Danny Glover in that movie, it would have been Bat 21 Mirror Image because uh, Gene Hackman was in both. It, he has a kind of specialised range when it comes to movies. Yeah. But yeah. that doesn't mean that we want to see it all the time. With, with him, it works incredibly well in movies like Midnight in Paris and um, I suppose The Wedding Crashes. I think Wedding Crashes is an alright movie. Um we just didn't need to see it again with that one where him and Vince Vaughn went to Google. Yeah. I mean, he's done all right in Loki recently. I, I actually do prefer him in Loki. I thought he did a yeah. fantastic job on that. And obviously, when he works for Wes Anderson, you know, that is his, that's the bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Judgment's out on Starsky and Hutch, <laughs> I guess. So Some people just never forget that. Well, that's the, the anniversary for this week. Short and sweet. Now... The Richard Mirisch episode two, we have a lot to talk about, covering his time from 2000 up to the present day. So we have stuff to talk about on along the lines of the Reaping, Gothic. Uh, obviously, the Matrix is what we're going to start out with, all the way leading to Godzilla versus Kong. Rawr. Okay, so there, rawr. there is a lot of stuff to cram in here. Uh, there are obviously... You know, quite a lot of points of Richard's career that we didn't get to cover in this, which we will hopefully cover in another episode. Uh, but for now, we're going to jump right in where we left off last week with our interview with producer Richard Mirish. 
Well, The Matrix is one of the most revolutionary movies that's ever made. And I know for a fact it's one of my favourite films. I think the summer that it came out, I must have seen it about four times at the cinema. And one of the key points of that were the special effects, which a lot of them were never before attempted. Bullet Time in particular was something that was perfected with this movie. Uh, But the VFX didn't get an awful lot of respect at the time on set from what I hear. So were you a champion for that course? I think at the time, uh, the movies that we were making, uh, on-set visual effect needs were very secondary, you know, while we were shooting. Mostly the crew didn't know or understand what was happening, and it lengthened the day when we had to stop and, and shoot plates and green screens and blue screens and and people would bring out cubes and shoot lighting references and you know I think most of the crew just wanted to get on with it and it and it was really kind of early days you didn't quite know what would you see or what would you do and but on the matrix the the visual effects that were lined up were given a great deal of respect and time and in such that Barry Osborne the one of the the line producer we had an entire second unit for about 86 days it was it was lined up in budget and it was the size of a like almost like a normal crew for a regular picture and coming down to Australia I was looking for a a piece of the of the pie didn't know again was unclear during shooting what I was going to do Joel just sent me down there and there was no really specific mandate and so I got down there and everybody sort of looked at me like why are you here what are you doing and and I kind of shrugged and I said I'm here to be helpful and do whatever I can and and I mean I remember early doing like a visual effects breakdown for Barry Osborne, you know, it's just sitting at a typewriter and going through the script. And, and I think he was just giving me something to do and just kind of, what do you think are visual effects at that? They were already John Gata was hired and, and the producing team was being lined up. And I think it was maybe, you know, again, it was early days. We had two guys doing pre-visualization, which I had never seen before on a computer working on some shots and Diana Giorgiudi came on to, to be one of the digital producers. But it was early days and just sort of sketching out what had to be done while the schedule was being made. And what was really helpful was that there were storyboards for the entire movie that were beautifully rendered. And we all got a notebook. And that was our Bible. That's what we used throughout the shooting because there were still so many questions about what things would look like and how would we do them. And we just were always referred to go look at the storyboard and and shoot that frame. And so I said to Barry, like, what's the second unit going to be doing? And he said, well, you know, they're going to be doing a lot of the time intense shots. And, and, you know, some days it'll only be two or three shots that they will be doing. Other times they'll be doing pickups and other times they'll be doing this thing we're calling bullet time, you know, where there's a lot of setup and and it just needs time and, and focus to be executed. And I said, well, that sounds great. How about letting me kind of get involved there? And he said, great. I think it was just also a way to get rid of me. So I wasn't shadowing him <laughs> the entire time, you know, and he's like, great, go take the second unit. 
So I did that. I and I I made the second unit my my baby. And what a tremendous group of people and and technicians and and uh, really formed a bond. And I was with them the entire time, literally after day one of shooting. The first day of shooting, they were shooting the scene of where Thomas Anderson gets the FedEx. He's in his little cubicle. That was like the first shot. The the FedEx guy comes in and he opens the FedEx and he and, and the and he you know mm-hmm. he drops the the cell phone into his hand. And I watched that scene, and it was you you know it was okay, it was cool. I was just sort of sitting there, but at the same time. Up on the roof, the second unit was shooting the sequence where Neo and Morpheus are hanging from the helicopter and, and being thrown around Sydney. So I went upstairs and uh, onto the roof, and I was watching the second unit. I was like, hmm, main unit or second unit? Where am I going to hang out today? Well, it was an obvious no-brainer. So that's where I made my move to hang with the second unit um, after day one. Now... In terms of championing visual effects, um, that particular movie, this we the second unit had had uh, a plenty of time and setup. Barry Osborne was a is a very bright producer and knew that we needed the time to do a lot of these things. And the main unit, of course, uh, I mean the shoot went on much longer than what was budgeted. Uh, but I, I mean, at a certain point, look, we we were down in Australia. We did not have executives hanging around us, this, the dailies were going back. And I think people were loving the dailies, not quite sure how it would all come together, quite honestly, but, you know, very impressed with the material they were seeing. And, and as the shoot went on and we needed more time, you know, we got it. And I think at the end of the day, it was closer to about 120 days of shooting. The second unit was think about 86 days. And then when that ended, we turned into a, a smaller unit to, to pick up elements and shoot certain things for a while. And then we became a micro unit with me and Ross Emery, the cinematographer. And I think Frank Flick, the first, you know, AC, you know, like the three of us running around picking up little kernels of, of material as well um, as the shoot extended. Well, I have to ask this uh, as you're here, but given that the the Wachowskis' big film before them was Bound, mm. and they were coming into such an expensive and effects laden movie, was there any yeah. was there any kind of undercurrent of uh, do these guys really know what it is that they're doing? How how well were they? How well did everything come together on set? And were there any misgivings going on at all? No, no. I mean. Bound is a phenomenal movie. Maybe mm. you should put it yeah. in. Put it in the box. Too late. I've seen it. Seen. It's in there. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's in there. Bound is a phenomenal movie, and I mean, they made that movie for what five or six million dollars. Mm. And you see the style, the technique, and and a number of the people that uh, a few people that worked on that also worked on the Matrix. I mean, listen, the story is well known that 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 getting the matrix made was not an easy process and larry and andy at the time needed to fight to stay on as directors and they and again they really had to you know board the entire movie which they did and i think that with joel championing them and the the work that they'd done on bound and the storyboards and then look they they sent us to australia at the time the dollar was incredibly strong i think it was 
you know, 60, you know, 65 cents or something to the dollar. So they hedged on the money and sent us down there, which turned out to be a blessing because, you know, we were, we were alone in our world. And the footage, as said, was so terrific that they, um, the studio uh, stayed away. They knew exactly what they were doing from day one. And they were they're very quiet, introspective people and not entirely approachable. You know, as a second unit, I remember the, within the first week, we shot some footage. We would do dailies every night. They would do all the first unit dailies. This is when we ran film. I mean, after day two or three, no, not many people were at dailies. The days were long and, and the Aussie crew liked to go drink. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> by the way, we did have alcohol at dailies. I don't know. I guess I can say that now. It, I mean, it was wine. We weren't like pounding tequila shots or anything, but we had, you know, wine and a, we had to set up a projection room. We were sort of the first people at Fox Studios. I think Babe the Pig had shot there. But some of the stages we were on, I mean, the paint was was just drawing and there, you know, they weren't set up. There was no theater. We had to jimmy a theater and, you know, bring out a card table and put some wine on it. But we'd watch dailies, uh, Bruce Hunt, the second unit director and, and Ross uh, Emery, the uh, cinematographer and, and Toby Pease, one of the ADs, like the four of us would go to dailies and we'd wait for all the first unit dailies to get done. We'd watch the second unit dailies and Early, very early on, the Wachowskis made it clear to Bruce and to us, like to shoot the storyboard page. Like, if you want to shoot something different, you know, great, but shoot what's on the page and get a few good takes. And then, if you have time, you want to shoot something different, go ahead. But they were insistent on, again, getting the storyboard because look, they had a comic book background and they had laid it out and they knew exactly what it was going to be where the rest of us didn't. And so for a director, for, for Bruce, I think it was a little tough to take because they're basically saying, just do this. And he wanted to get creative, of course. And, and it was hard initially for him. But then at the beginning of days when we were shooting, we'd go to them early in the day and okay how do you want this shot and they you know they they just stare at us kind of have a wry <laughs> smile and just point to the damn storyboard <laughs> i mean there was no discussion that was going to be had about doing something if they weren't going to be able to be there to shoot it themselves they were going to make damn sure that they got what they wanted via the the illustrations and so we follow the illustrations. We'd set the composition up and exactly. We, I mean, you know, we'd stand by the camera and, and like AB the board to, to, to the frame. And what was terrific was seeing it come to life. Everything was very detailed and precise because we had the time. And, you know, sometimes certain days we were just getting establishing shots. You know, we would like go to great lengths to make sure to really make the page come alive. And then we were really hopeful going into dailies the next day that we would get a pat on the back. You know, when they finally would show our material, we, we afterwards, we kind of approach, approach them, like waiting to hear, is this amazing? Wow, you guys did great, you know, wanting the blessing. <laughs> and we would get pretty good, pretty good. 
you know, and pretty good was successful. I mean, if we got a pretty good after a time, we learned that that was really great. The guys at the time were so even keel, just so chill, but knew what they wanted and, and got it. Again, when we finished shooting, no idea what the picture was going to ultimately turn out. And that's a movie that I did not do post-production on. I was, I, it was about an, an eight-month experience for me. And then I traveled Australia for a month with a buddy of mine. And I mean, honestly, that I, the, the first time I saw the film was at the premiere. I was at the Fox Theater in Westwood sitting up in the balcony. And like everybody else, was blown away. I mean, it moved so fast. I kept trying to like, oh, we did that shot. Oh, wait, wait, we wait, wait, we did that. That's in there. You know, <laughs> I was, I was really proud. So, I mean, basically, most everything that we shot as a unit and the work that we did was there. And that's again because their direction was so precise. And again, you know, go to those boards. That was the mantra. Go to the storyboards. Well, the film was groundbreaking for many reasons. We could go into so much detail about the special effects, but one which stood out most was the helicopter crash, which was really driven home in the commercials and TV spots for the movie. Now, how was that actually achieved? Well, that sequence was the second unit sequence. You know, it was a miniature, I think it was quarter scale helicopter that was, you know, rigged by an arm to fire into a quarter-scale building that was erected. We didn't shoot that at the studio. It was quite a distance away from the studio. I think it was like close to an hour drive to get to the set. And the set was under construction for a long time. What I do remember prior to the actual shoot day was how many different tests we did on exploding glass. You know, the the, the glass had to be tempered in a very precise manner. So we shot many, many tests at many different speeds. And that went on for a while. And, we, and while they were constructing the set, I mean, we had a days designated, you know, on light days of shooting for the second unit to go out and check on the, the, on the build and the construction of it. It was turned into such a massive set piece that, Finally, on the day of shooting, I remember, I think we had a call sheet that was over 30 pages. And so much of it had to do with, well, we were out in the sticks, but we had to move people out of their farms and houses for a couple hours when we were going to do what we called the event, because they were worried about the blast radius and the noise. I mean, we literally (laughs) had, we had livestock moved. I remember, and I was like, isn't this overkill? Like, I mean, really? Like, this is what, I mean, we're just going to blow up a little, you know, a a little, like, helicopter? Uh, I mean, what's the big deal? It was a big deal. There was an enormous amount of preparation that went in, not just, you know, on the getting the glass properly designed and moving people (laughs) out of their homes. I think we took them all to a tent and gave them breakfast. You know, I mean, people were really cool about it. I mean, somehow they let us do it. And we shot it with natural light. So we had got, had to go out there a few times to get an exact time of when the lighting worked for the shot. And it was very precise. It was very early morning. 
I think I, I don't remember the exact time. It was something like, I don't know, 618. Ross Emery is like, we have to shoot right at 618. The event has to go off right then, or I can't promise it will be lit properly. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty precise, Ross. He's like, all right, I'll give you a 10 minute window. You know, like you have five <laughs> minutes this way and five minutes that way. I'm like, okay, well, that's not a lot better, but it's something. And, you know, we had been out, I think, it was, I think it was like a seven camera shoot and we had to create a bunker. You know, we all went into a bunker and everything had to be fired off via remote. And we had little monitors that were set up. The setup and the preparation was quite extraordinary, particularly from a camera vantage point. And, you know, we were there the couple days before to, to, to get set up. And then we were there the, the, the night before setting up and, and really getting ready. And we had achieved our, our prep guidance. We were in the bunker. And what had to be done at that time was the special effects people had to set off a, a little blast to get the arm of, the, of what was holding the helicopter to make its movement into the glass. So that had to be, you know, triggered and, and rigged and exploded. And we had the cameras all ready to go. I think the main camera straight ahead was, was a, I think it was a Photosonics camera running at 300 frames. All the cameras were in boxes. And we knew also we didn't have a lot of time. It was a short event. And by the way, we knew we only had one take. This was not something that you were going to shoot again. I mean, you could maybe, you know, shoot a pickup of the of the helicopter inside after the event, but this was designed as a as a one-off event to shoot. So, you're you better have enough film, you better your timing better be right, and the Wachowskis were not actually out there uh for for when this happened. Neither was Bill Pope. Uh neither was Barry Osborne. Uh Gata was out there. And uh, I think Yannick Sirs, the other visual effect uh, supervisor, was out there. But it was kind of us. It was sort of like the second unit. You know, I do remember Barry kind of calling me, like, how's it going? You know, remember, you've got one shot at this. Don't fuck this up. And no pressure at all or anything. And this was deep into the shoot. So this was very deep into the shoot. And as said, we so much time had gone into the setup. And so we, we, we get into position. The time is near, and the assistant director, Toby Pease, calls action. The cameras start to go. And immediately, like very quickly, Steve Courtley, who was our special effects uh, supervisor, yelled, stop, 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 stop. And all the cameras shut down. Like, what, what, what? He's like, the trigger isn't working. The trigger isn't working to set off the, the helicopter. And we're like, oh, you know, I mean, we've got 10 minutes here. Ross Emery is telling me uh, we've got 10 minutes to, to fire this off. And we can't even, you know, the, now I don't know. Is, is there enough film in the mags? Because changing the mags was no small deal. You know, we all had to be in a bunker because there was the possibility of a, you know, of the blast going off from the trigger. And Steve was like, I got to run out there. I've got to go out there. And, you know, panic ensued. We all did quick checks. I think one of the cameras needed a quick mag change, and Steve was running out there to figure out the trigger to let the helicopter fly. The clock is ticking. I'm looking over at Ross Emery, who's basically kind of shrugging and saying, like, 
this ain't on me anymore. Like if you don't, get, <laughs> I'm like Ross. Ross, what do you think? Can we do? And he's like, it's six seventeen. You know, you have one minute, and then after that, I can't promise that the light will be perfect. And I turned to Gata and I'm like, oh my God, well, what can you fix this? I mean, if, if it's 623, did we screw it up? I mean, should we call it off? Should we call it off and come back tomorrow to fight another day? And I mean, it was, it was chaotic and Courtly is out there trying to trigger it. They're trying to, you know, get the camera mag going. Emery's in the corner sort of shaking his head and I'm talking to the AD and Toby, what do you think? It was like, we had to take a straw poll right then and there about, whether we should do this or not. And Toby being the great AD that he is like, Richard, we have a very full day tomorrow. I mean, we can't come back here. You know, I mean, this will set off a number of issues. And I, of course, I'm thinking I should call Barry Osborne. What are we going to do? Well, the team was really efficient. The, the mag got changed. Courtly came back and said, okay, I've got it. I've got it. It'll work this time. We're a few minutes past when Ross gave us the window and I took a very quick straw poll. Like, what do you think? What do you think? Yes, no, yes, no. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Should we not? People were like, yeah, I don't, yeah, well, there was no real consensus, but I think everybody knew they wanted to do it because they didn't want to come back here the next night. We wanted to just do it and get it off. And so we, we as a group kind of went, okay, fine, let's do it. And we call rolling and the cameras are cranked and going, and the event was over in like three seconds, and that was it. Like it, it was like it was like literally like it exploded. The helicopter went into the glass. By the way, it went into the glass. It wasn't like fireworks went off, and people were clapping when you see a stunt or something that that had had that had taken up this amount of time and energy and preparation. And when a stunt comes off on a set. You know, people are like, yes, you're high-fiving. You know, you know you've pulled off something magical. And this happens. And the helicopter went into the, to the, to the glass. It broke the glass. And, you know, the camera shut off. And we just all kind of looked at each other. And I, like, looked at Gator and I went, that was it? Like, so that's it? Like, we're, <laughs> I mean, like, so, so now what? Are you good? And, you know, he went, yeah, I think it was good. And I, we all went, yeah, look good. So... The playback, video playback operator, a wonderful guy named Anthony Toy Star. We're like, okay, play him back, play him back. Let's play him back. You know, like go to the main camera, go to that front camera first. Again, we were looking at probably, I don't know, a six inch by six inch black black and white screen. And he plays it. We're all huddled around it. You know, and you see like a, a, a a little helicopter with an arm on it kind of like swing into a piece of glass. And we all looked at it and we're like, yeah, that looked pretty good. That was all right. You know, like, wow, okay, the glass broke around it. We were thrilled, you know, like there was a little, you know, like a little fire explosion behind it that you could now see. And, you know, then we're like, okay, let's look at this camera. Okay, let's look at this camera. Let's look at this camera. You know, we looked at all the cameras and there was nothing to be done, as said. There wasn't a take two. And we went, okay, I mean, like, cool. And we packed up and left. And the next day at Daly's, the unit, for some like everybody came to, to Daly's that night for some reason. I guess so much time <laughs> and energy. And, and, and I think we were joking, you know, it became tedious for the second unit because, yeah, we had to sit through all this first unit BS. Like, who wants to see Keanu and 
you know, Carrie Ann and, and Fishburne when you can see a quarter scale helicopter blow into a piece of tempered glass. You know, we were a bit riled up. We must have had too much wine. You know, I remember sitting in dailies. We were like, come on, come on. We want the second unit. We want the... And they turned around and told us to shut up. And they finally got to the dailies. I mean, and I got to say, like, it looked really good. I mean, it, at that point, I couldn't visualize how the rippling glass would look when they were done with it. But when the helicopter went in, the glass that had been tempered and, and put out in a concentric explosion, you know, broke, like boom, 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 like you could see it. And I think we had gotten the scale properly done. And I mean, we were whooping and hollering again, like, you know, woo, we pulled it off and, you know, we're telling our story. And I, I think, again, we went to the Wachowskis afters and we were really now expecting like, great job, you know, like amazing. And we got a maybe a slightly more animated, pretty good. They might have said good. We took that again as a huge compliment. We were like, we did it. We did it. They're happy. I mean, it's all you want to do when you're shooting a movie. All you really want to do when you're shooting is please the director, is give them what they want. Because, you know, that's that's your job. And it was tough to please them. But we worked our asses off, whether it was this miniature helicopter explosion or or bullet time. We did all the bullet time work as well to please them and, and give them what they need. And I think if, if you watch the movie, most everything we did is in there is used. So we're all, you know, as a unit, a second unit in particular, we're all pretty proud of that. Well, definitely. The 2000s were shaped by the Matrix, and it really changed for yourself as the millennium kind of opened the doors to new kinds of cinema, new cinema tastes. And you spent those first early years uh, working with Joel Silver again on such movies as Cradle to the Grave, etc., as well as producing the horror movies such as 13 Ghosts and Ghost Ship. And Ghost Ship obviously has one of the greatest <laughs> openings yeah. in a horror movie ever. Uh, but it kind of opened up something else very special for you as well. It did. Um, and it wasn't the blood and guts of the opening sequence, which, but, but that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, you know, K&B did a great job, you know, with with torso, you know, you had to walk around lots of torsos and and guts on the deck where we were shooting. I met my future wife on Ghost Ship. Her name is is Bellin Mirish. And I actually had the great foresight to hire her. She was the first person I, I met to interview to work in our editorial room. And... I obviously, you know, saw this beautiful young woman, but she was way too young for me. And I got my dirty old man thoughts out of my head. And but I hired her. I wasn't a fool. She was incredibly intelligent and capable. I think I spent my the interview with her telling her about uh, a two week driving tour I took of Perth with my brother. And God bless her. She seems she stayed interested and and listened to my bullshit. And uh, so <laughs> I, I kind I kind of knew like okay, you know she you know like uh, you know she's going to be a great uh, asset to the team. And we were friends during the, the shoot. It wasn't until many years later we stayed in touch. And, and interestingly enough, many years later, I think it was like two thousand five or six. So it wasn't that many years later. It was a few years later. 
we were having a matrix reunion dinner and she was in town and she didn't work on the matrix, but it was kind of like, you know, my Austra like the Australian friends and, and the group of Aussies that uh, I'd formed a friendship with. And Bellin was in town working for Sony image works. Uh, I think she was working on ghost rider. She was their visual effects coordinator. And we had reconnected at this dinner and the rest, as they say, is history. We were pretty much together. I think we went on a date a week later and have been together ever since and have our two beautiful girls, uh, Grace and Sophie, uh, 14, and Sophie's turning 12 next month. So the ghost ship experience, while being a terrific shooting experience on many levels, obviously the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life was meeting Bellin and later marrying her. And obviously, we, while you were kind of doing the, these horror movies, it also led to Gothica, which is kind of a, a fan favorite, kind of cult horror movie uh, that started to getting reappreciated nowadays. And obviously, it reunited you with Robert Downey Jr., who was kind of at the beginning of his evolution back into a bankable star after his troubles. I understand you made this movie in Montreal and you were kind of present for an incredible positive in Robert's life during that movie also. I, I was, and that was a great experience in Montreal with director Matthew Kasovitz and cinematographer uh, Matty Libatique. And Montreal is a fantastic place. And I was up there with, uh, with Susan Levine. She was Susan Levine at the time. She was really Joel's right hand creative person, head of development. And, and so the two of us uh, went up there to, to oversee the shoot. And as you said, Robert was not the Robert that we know of now. I mean, I mean, I think at the time it was challenging from an insurance perspective to get him onto the picture, but Joel really believed in him and fought for him to be in the picture and made it happen. I mean, Robert, you know, we talked a little bit about less than zero back then. But I remember one early, and I, I guess maybe, maybe, what, maybe it was pre-production. Susan and I were having dinner, just the two of us one night. And we said, what should we do after dinner? And she said, I heard Robert and, uh, you know, a few people are going to go be at this restaurant or bar later. Should we go over and, and hang with them? And I said, well, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, we didn't know what else to do. So we finished dinner. We went over to meet Robert. His, his trainer was there, Harley Pasternak, I remember, who has become a, a celebrity trainer and was a great guy. And I think a couple other uh, friends. And we went into a restaurant and there they were. And we sat down. I mean, I think it was within two to five minutes that Susan and Robert engaged in a discussion that had so much intensity that the rest of us were like, wait, should we leave or should we, <laughs> should we hang out? I mean, they were engaged and they were like in their own world right away. And there was an obvious connection. I mean, obviously they knew each other prior to this meeting Um but I, I'm not sure if there had been many, if any other social engagements that they had been involved with. So we hung out, we, you know, we were chatting and, you know, they were chatting and we were 
you know, they were very polite. And I think we, okay, we were there for a little while. We went somewhere else. I think, I don't know, we bar hopped a little bit. I think we went to like three bars and, and I don't think I had a five minute discussion with, with Robert. And that was fine because we kind of knew something's happening here, you know, like <laughs> this is, you know, like something's going on here and we're, we're really not meant to be a part of it. We were kind of a little bit of a, a wall or a shield to them, I think, from where we were, you know, at the different places to create some, some degree of privacy for them to just continue to, to talk and get to know each other. And uh, it's really cool. I think that point moving forward, you know, they got to, they were a couple, but I think it was very on the down low. I think they kept it very professional and very much on the down low during the shoot. But if you were paying attention, you, you kind of, you knew what was happening in it. And it was really great to see, really happy. And what a team they, they are. Susan really helped Robert kind of shape and craft his career. He, Robert would later do a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I did not work on. And, uh, you know, his, oh, just became the biggest star in the world, you know, a little, a little something like that. But, but it was terrific to be there. I believe like, you know, I was there at the genesis of their relationship and, um, it was great to see. Oh, it's always nice when you, when you manage to find someone and you really connect. I love that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, rounding out your journey through horror. Your mm. next two horror movies face their own real-life horrors. So you had The Reaping, which was interrupted mm. by Hurricane Katrina, which mm. I understand resulted in quite an escape from Baton Rouge. <laughs> it did. I mean, you know, obviously the, the reports uh, were not looking good for what was happening <laughs> in the area. Our line producer, executive producer, Herb Gaines, who's a fabulous producer... You know, I mean, the, the preparation of uh, and the anticipation was a balance that we were trying to figure out and find. And, you know, like part of us, you know, you didn't know if it maybe it would blow over before it hit landfall. And but we were all prepared. Herb was 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 ready to go. The day we bugged out, we were playing golf that morning. I was playing golf with with Herb and the visual effects editor at this, on the show, Adam Avery. And I remember Herb getting a call that was going to pull him away from the golf course. And I turned to him and I said, can I finish the 18? You know, like I was so stupid. I was like, you know, wait, wait, I'm, I'm having a good round. You know, can I finish? You know, like I know you're leaving. And he like just sort of laughed, I think, and ran away. And he's like, keep your cell, keep your cell phone close. And I continued playing golf yeah. with, with, with Adam Avery. I was like having a good round. I'm like, should we keep going? I mean, I think we can get 18 in. It was like Caddyshack, you know, I, I mean, before the storm. I don't think the heavy stuff's going to come down for a while. But it was perfectly clear out. I'm like, what's the big deal? You know, like, let's keep going. We played a few more holes. You know, I think my phone rang and it was like, be prepared to leave at three o'clock. Okay, went back and cut the round short, but went back and prepared. And people already in the area had been, had been bugging out for some time. We, for some reason, were either holding out hope or, you know, that Hollywood hubris of thinking, well, we can stand this. We, we've got special effects. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, we're, you know, we're a movie crew. I mean, you know, like, well, there's nothing going to stop us. Well, 
we left, you know, we went to Baton Rouge <laughs> airport and Herb had somehow gotten Mark Cuban's plane for us, the Dallas Mavericks plane. I don't know how to this day, how he finagled his way, but he got the Mavericks plane and we all loaded up. I mean, I think at that point you could see clouds in the distance. We were told that we were the last plane out of Baton Rouge airport. And I think we knew, okay, this isn't a joke. And this, I mean, it was pretty, it, it was pretty serious. They took it very serious in terms of prepping and getting us out of there. And we flew to Austin, Texas. And I mean, we were like, what are we going to do? How long are we going to be here? What's the deal? And, and we saw the, the devastation and we saw how serious it was. And that scared us straight. We weren't sure for a while if we were then going to go back and continue shooting. There was lots of discussions that were happening. As I said, we were there for about a, for a week and we the, the determination was made that we should go back, that we should continue shooting, that you know we wanted to try and create normalcy as quickly as possible. People needed their jobs. We were bringing in economy and and so we went back and you know, we had to kind of restart again um, and get geared up. But we went back to shooting pretty quickly. It was quite amazing. There were follow-up storms that were hitting after Katrina. And I, you know, I remember we were all staying, all, all the out-of-towners were staying at a, a condo complex that had you know, amenities and whatnot. So we'd get together and hang out. And I don't know, there was one night we were shortly after Katrina, we were we we were on the first floor playing cards and and there was a storm outside I and mean, i guess we didn't realize how severe the follow up storm was cuz water started pouring underneath the doors and it was pretty soon like we were in a flooded situation i mean i was lucky my room was on the second floor so i was <laughs> like hey dude see you later like good luck with this like if you need some towels if you need some towels, come up and I can help you. I mean, this poor bastard has got like three inches of rain in his room. You know, we called off the poker game. And um, so there was follow-up storms and, and, and issues going on. We somehow managed to finish the shoot, but that was an experience to, 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 for sure. Well, I'll bet you a pair of dry socks. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so, okay, then we have House of Wax. Yes. And the infamous stage fire that has been the staple of debate since Bill Daly joked about it a couple of weeks back. As you were the man on the ground, what happened? Well, uh, you know, I was the man on the ground, but uh, and that was another picture I did with Herb Gaines. We joked that the two of us were really jinxes and no one was going to hire us again. <laughs> we, we burned down a stage and then we, uh, you know, we were there for, uh, for Katrina. But I was really a a wingman, very much a wingman during the shoot to Herb. And I was in Herb's office BSing about something. And his, and again, his phone rang and, you know, <laughs> not mine. And the call came that, you know, uh, the stage is on fire. And I'm like, what? And he gets off the phone and he's like, the stage is on fire. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. And we kind of ran outside. Our bungalow, I mean, our bungalow, our, our, our offices were such that we were, you know, we weren't right up against the stage, but we ran outside, kind of ran up to a plateau point, and yeah, the stage was on fire. You know, we could see it pop coming through the roof, and people were running away, 
And I'm like, what, what do we do? Like your, your first inclination is run to it. And then you get to a point <laughs> you're like, wait, why am I running towards it? What can I do? I'm not going to like pull a Kurt Russell from backdraft and, and run in and, you know, pull people out. Like it's, it's a little too late. Like this thing is, is a blaze. Uh, thankfully nobody was hurt and it was contained rather quickly, but there wasn't much left of that stage. I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you that and was on all the news. And again, we shut down very, we're resilient people and you make a movie the clock is ticking and the money is is being spent and but thankfully nobody was hurt and 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 I don't think we were down very long I mean maybe the next day or we were shooting pretty quickly I remember Herb called a crew meeting and we talked it out and I think we went back to work Uh, again fortunately for us just from a shooting standpoint we were able to keep going and move. And there was another stage where we were able to get going. I mean, when nobody really knows exactly how and why, I think it was, it was a special effects issue only in that I think there were candles being burnt on the stage for the scene. And I don't know if a candle fell over or somebody blew a Ritter fan, you know, into the candle. And I know some curtains caught fire and, and it happened. The event, it was like the helicopter crash. The event happened really fast. Like it went up and went down really fast. And again, it's, it's really remarkable that nobody was hurt and everybody bugged out quickly because the crew was intelligent. Nobody tried to go find a, I don't know if somebody did. I wasn't there, but I can't imagine somebody tried to find an, a fire extinguisher and said, I'll put this out. But I mean, everybody got out and oh, look, uh, Roadshow got a new stage out of it. Late, many years later, Lynn Benzi, you know, was like, oh, we got a brand new state of the art stage. So I was like, oh, great. Well, you know where we are if you need us again to come here and, and, and torch a set for you. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, we, you know. I mean, you know, out of the ashes came state-of-the-art equipment. So, but yeah, obviously a scary experience that you never want to happen. Fortunately, uh, nobody was hurt. And I heard Bill say that maybe, first of all, Mr. Daly, if you're listening, (laughs) I mean, I heard him intimate that I might have been smoking. Uh, I've never smoked in my life. Well, uh, that that, uh, that I'll admit to. But I wasn't, I wasn't on set at the time and, and uh, it wasn't, I know it wasn't a cigarette or anything. And yes, somebody shot something on, a, on their phone camera, which I did see, but I do not have a copy of it. Phone cameras were pretty in, in the nascent days of quality. But yeah, you could see what was happening quickly. Somebody, I don't know, broke their phone out. And so we, we did see it, but uh I wanted nothing to do with with procuring that uh, that piece of footage, but it, it 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 does exist. Somebody has it, I'm guessing. And and um, as said, most importantly, nobody was hurt. Yes, it, it's kind of hanging around side by side with the full version of Ricochet. Those two pieces of footage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've maintained very positive relationships and friendships over your years, including with director Scott Cooper, who you produced Black Mass with. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Scott Cooper ever since I saw Out of the Furnace. I think he is a a fantastic director. 
And I actually have a great Richard Mirror story that I have never told you before. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to tell you now. Uh, when I came to meet you at Legendary Pictures in Burbank, this was about four or five years ago, I think. Uh-huh. When I got to the building, I got to the elevators there, and I'm green as hell, just wearing jeans, shirt, whatever, wondering how the hell I got invited to this place. And I must have looked lost because I didn't expect to end up at Legendary. So <laughs> as I'm getting in the elevator, this executive-looking guy gets in the elevator with me, and just me and him in there. And he's looking me up and down, you know, looking at me like, this guy must be lost. He's probably spent more on lunch than I paid in rent for that month, okay? <laughs> and he, he turns to me and asks, uh, you know, what floor are you going to? And I'm like, uh, it's the, uh, the top floor, because that's where we were meeting. Right. And he takes a second, and he's, he's still looking me up and down. <laughs> and it's like, how in this, how you are this shady guy looking. got in here? <laughs> I am. I am shady looking when I, I look like a, I didn't even feel like I was should have been there. You're just so tall and imposing, you know? You're a big... I know. This guy guy was pretty tall himself. Okay. As I remember it. And uh, he takes a second and he asks, who am I meeting? I Mm. say, oh, I'm here to meet Richard Mirish. His tone totally changes. And suddenly Mm. he's like, oh, Richard Mirish is here. What a guy. Uh, Tell him so-and-so says hello. And he Mm. shakes my hand and Mm. leaves the floor before us. (laughs) And I'm there like... What the hell just happened? <laughs> and that is the Richard Mirish effect. Every time that if I've, I've met you or, or we've gotten together, everyone has always said what a genuine guy you are. And you have been oh. since and all the time that I've known you. And I don't remember that guy's name. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was Scott Cooper. Um... <laughs> it, it might have been Scott Cooper. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, that's thank you. That's that's nice to hear, um, and and I appreciate that. And uh, whoever that was, um, you know, cool, cool. That was really that's. I I pull the wool over someone else's eyes. I've got them. I've got them right where I want them, thinking I'm a good guy. You know, being a good guy in my business actually, it's different maybe now than it was. 10, 20 years ago, truthfully, I have never been much of a shark. And that's probably why certain things that maybe I wanted to do or, you know, didn't happen because I, I, I've never been really entirely cutthroat or willing to, to sell my soul. Uh, same way Keanu didn't in Devil's Advocate. You know, I've kind of like managed to to just look at the what I've been doing and, and enjoy, enjoy the ride. For me, the greatest thing is working with a group of people and collaborating and you got to show mutual respect and for everybody has a job to do and and uh, you work as a team. I'm, I'm a huge sport guy. I love team sports and I kind of look at working on a movie as similarly like you're a big team. If you want to be successful, you have to make everybody feel like what they're doing is is important and you can't put yourself above anybody else either. So I've tried to act that way. Uh, we've all had our moments, but hopefully you carry on and, and you treat people the way you want them to treat you. Definitely. Well, that's it. around that time, uh, you were doing uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, I believe because you traveled up from the Warner mm-hmm. Brothers lot to meet me at Legendary. And yeah. we've covered kind of particles of your career here, but we have to mention Godzilla versus Kong. Mm. And this is obviously the first movie to break the post-pandemic box office. And for this movie, 
uh, I understand you practically left the office on Friday and were on location from a Monday. Is that right? Well, pretty much. I mean, we were aware, obviously, what was happening in the world with COVID. And we had started to make preparations. And we didn't know, again, are we going to shut down, go on a hiatus until we can come back? We were, you know, I mean, end of February, early March, we were all a bit in the dark about what was happening and how long this would last. But the people at Legendary, again, we very smart in terms of preparing us. We talked about a remote situation. We were in a good place with the picture and we were about to preview it. But so the movie was pretty much intact. So instead of shutting down, we decided to create a remote workflow and we got that into place. And yeah, I mean, look, I left my office on a, on a Friday, I think it was, and um, packed up and went home, not knowing how long we'd be working at home. And we started Zooming with each other every morning. We had a, a group Zoom of the core people. And thankfully, the remote Avid systems were jacked into the, the storage and we had virtual networks set up that everybody could continue to work. And we just started working. We kept a schedule. We looked at the schedule. We were working on whatever final picture changes. I mean, the biggest question we had was, are we going to preview? And it became pretty obvious that we were not going to be able to get a preview in. We discussed doing remote previews and, and different things, but they finally made a decision. We weren't going to preview. Let's finish the movie. And then, you know, we had to work hand in hand with with Warner Brothers to figure out how to mix the picture and also Company 3 with how to time the picture. The visual effects were all kind of being finished. So the visual effects team really had their own workflow in place. And so it was a lot of on the fly figuring out what to do and stay safe. Safety, again, was always the most important thing. But we managed to stay on schedule and get the picture done and delivered when we were supposed to. That's just, again, you know, a great team effort and, and, and just moving in a different direction. You know, again, I left that Friday. I haven't think I saw Wingard, the director and, and the, the editor at a, at a screening, not a premiere screening, but you no, know, we were allowed three or four people at the color timing. I think I, I saw them once or twice, but a lot of those people, I mean, we were Zooming every day, but I haven't seen them yet since. And yet somehow we finished the movie. The movie came out. The movie did really well. And uh, we're really thankful and pleased uh, how it turned out. And, and again, it was a great lesson of what can be done when you have some ingenuity and resourcefulness. You put that together. That Hollywood spirit, man, we get it done. Like no matter what, <laughs> where, you know, you know, K Katrina... You know, uh, burning down a stage or COVID, that won't stop us. We're, we're going to get the picture done no matter what. Oh. And, and we did. And, you know, funnily also, Herb Gaines is the head of production at Legendary. So I, I don't know. I, I really do think. I mean, Herb and I have this track record, burn down stage. Um, you know, Katrina, and now you can add COVID to it, you know. But all the, I mean, so I, I listen, I don't know. But. Uh, we got it done. Uh, on, a, on a side note, before I actually ask ask the uh, the next question, I was actually in Mexico City when you guys were filming King of the Monsters. Um, right, I, I was there with my ex and 
the friend of hers was touring us around and oh what's going down there oh they're filming the new Godzilla film and it's like oh right brilliant mm-hmm. yeah um yes anyway so going back to Godzilla versus Kong now what was the biggest surprise from it was it the box office opening the Rotten Tomatoes freshness score <laughs> or was it the fact that you were moving on to streaming on HBO Max I mean, I think all those things, I mean, you always hope that you get a good response and that the movie does well, and no matter what you're doing, whether I'm working on The Apparition or Godzilla vs. Kong. I mean, I think we kind of knew with The Apparition, we weren't going to, to, to make a lot of uh, box office with that picture. But I mean, you know, you hoped with Godzilla vs. Kong that the picture was going to do well. But again, with the day and date situation, I mean, obviously it was a surprise that they were going to do that. And nobody really knew how that would work. We were very lucky that when the picture opened, theaters were opening up and there was such a a pent up uh, in the States. Uh, And certainly in China, it did huge numbers. It's opening weekend. It opened in China the week before it opened in the States. And that was really a great sign. Uh, But we were lucky enough that enough theaters had opened that there, people were dying to get out, you know, and go see a movie. It's always harder to know exactly how to track the, the streaming numbers. But from what I'm told and understand, it, it did quite well uh, streaming and the box office. So maybe the two forms of exhibition can coexist. I mean, that's a, a work in progress that Hollywood is currently figuring out. We were pleasantly surprised, I think, with the Rotten Tomatoes score. We all, you always speculate, what do you think we're going to be? Are we going to be here? Are we going to be there? And the, you know, the, the, the ultimate number was a bit higher, I think, than what we were estimating or guesstimating. I think critics were also just thrilled to go see a movie in a theater. For many of them, I think it was one of their first movies to go and review in a theater. And, and, and quite honestly, the movie's fun. It doesn't take itself so seriously. The effects are tremendous. And, I mean, you got Kong in it, and Kong is so relatable, and the relationship with Gia, I think, is very strong, and, uh, you know, I think that people maybe who wouldn't normally go to an effects picture, with Kong, he's a different leading man, and so I think maybe some people who wouldn't have normally gone to see this kind of movie went to see it. So, all around, a big win from the box office to the streaming, to the Rotten Tomatoes. And after what we all went through, the timing, we caught a really great break with the timing, I I believe. And I know Legendary and and Warner Brothers are quite thrilled with how it did and the picture it was. Well, definitely. And and Richard, you know, your your family has a lot of hard-earned success, as we've mentioned. And there's there's so much more that's worth mentioning. We're going to have to bring you back on to talk even more. And especially with The Matrix 4 being released this year, it'd be fun to go and revisit that first one and, and talk some more on it. As well as uh, mentioning, you know, within your family circle, you know, you've got your aunt, who is the trailblazing and iconic agent at ICM, Tony Howard, mm. who handles the careers of people like Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Caine, Christopher Walken, Spike Lee, so many more. We also have your other aunt, uh, Mitzi McCall, and her husband, Charlie Brill. They were on the Ed Sullivan show the same night as the Beatles, which is just incredible. And How obviously, crazy you know, is that? That is very crazy. And obviously, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, your stepfather, Leonard Goldberg, you know, such an illustrious 
producer by himself and with Aaron Spelling and being the head of 20th Century Fox and a bit of trivia also. He's the man who created the movie of the week for ABC in the early 70s. And, and these are all things that we really want to hear about and want to kind of get you back to talk about. Uh, but obviously, we can't have a guest on the show without asking them to nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. Or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. I bet you he thought we were going to add that in post. (laughs) (laughs) No, we do it live, damn it. I, 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 you know what? I, I did. I thought you were going to add it. And po- you know, everybody always says, "Fix it and post. Fix it and post." And but uh, you know, if you can get if you can get it while you're shooting practically, that's always the way to go. But so, good job, good job. Exactly. We we do it to hear the reaction from the people who have no idea it's coming. But the thing <laughs> is, you actually know about it. So. <laughs> I did. I've listened to it, and uh, is, is that Steve singing? By the way, is that no? That is our wonderful composer Neil Pretty, who was our guest on our second show. He's responsible for recording pretty much all of the music that we use in both Pottywood and Pottywood After Dark. So by himself as well, yeah, one man band. He does a good job. He does well. Nominate five. It's the section of the show every week where we ask our guest. Uh, if we have one, and obviously when we don't have one as well, to nominate five uh, within movies uh, that they say are recommended for people to go and discover. And obviously with having a Mirish on the show, we've got to ask for the five best movies with the name Mirish behind it. (laughs) So, on a... I don't even know if I should curse it by saying a countdown. <laughs> because okay. it never goes no, right. No, it never goes right. Always, every single week, we end up. It's never a countdown. It's always in chronological order. It's in alphabetical order. It's in whatever order the guest decides to pull them out of the, the hat. So, or it's only three if you're Bill Bailey, <laughs> or seven. He's never even managed a five yet. <laughs> well, that'll be Bill. That'll be Bill. So, well, I'll, we're gonna... I'll do five for you. Okay. Well, we'll count down backwards from five. So, starting with number five, Richard, what do we have? I'm going to go with The Apartment as number five. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brilliant. Billy Wilder's picture with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray. And it's a wonderful picture. If you watch it now, it certainly feels dated. Such a different time. But what isn't dated is Jack Lemmon's performance and all of the performances and it's a terrific social commentary of the time of 1960. I think it won Best Picture and and is is uh, one of Billy's best. Agreed. It is an absolutely amazing choice. Put it in the box. It's in the box. Oh, it's in the box. All <laughs> yeah. oh, right. Okay. Because I'm going to be honest, I have not seen it. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people of our generation probably have. I mean, it, it's on Turner Classic uh, quite a bit. But um, yeah, it's a movie to seek out and uh, check out. Okay, then. Well, in that case, what is going to be your fourth choice? So my fourth choice is West Side Story. Well, um, yes. Which is one of the early, one of the, the, the mirish pictures that that I saw at an early age and was and was wowed by 
for so many reasons. I mean, the music and, and you know, see, I think it's the first musical I saw it and seeing people break into song and into dance in New York City and and but then have this this rough story of these two gangs and then at the center a love story. You know, I mean, I don't think I knew Romeo and Juliet at the time. Uh, I, so I was pretty kind of like blown away by by all of it. I think that's a picture that certainly still holds up unless you're Steven Spielberg and feel like it needs to be remade, you know, <laughs> um, which, as you, you guys know, there's a trailer out there and they're remaking that. And I think that's coming out in uh, in December. So it will be interesting Ooh. to to see that, um, to see what Mr. Spielberg did. I didn't know they were remaking it. That is interesting. No, no, I, I actually saw they were holding auditions for it here in the UK. I'm surprised you didn't go for it, Steve. Uh, <laughs> well, I can't dance. I can sing a little, but my God, I cannot dance. So there's no way that I'm putting myself through that one. Oh, Steve, you I, you could have been a shark. I see you. You could have been yeah. a shark. I, I have so little natural rhythm every time I have sex after I have a metronome on the pillow. <laughs> but yeah, we, we'll see if it's uh, this year's cats. By the way, so let's go for uh, number three. Number three is going to be a picture called "In the Heat of the Night." Um, oh, brilliant! It, it's a yeah. it's a, a picture that won the uh, Oscar in '67 with the great Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. And in, in iconic roles directed by Norman Jewison. And this is unlike the apartment, you know, I mean, again, this is a, a cultural masterpiece of what was going on in America with the civil rights situation in the 60s. It's still relevant, very relevant yes. movie oh, that yeah. should be watched. Whereas the apartment is a, you know, is of a totally different era. It was made seven years later, and here we are, you know, 50 years later. And I mean, honestly, I'd say the apartment is dated in the heat of the night is not dated. And it still has so much to teach us. I mean, it's a knockout. It really is a knockout, you know, on, on again, so many levels. Yeah, it's a timeless movie that, unlike West Side Story and especially Magnificent Seven as well, you, you can't remake it because it doesn't need remaking. Well, yeah. it, it speaks to every generation. They did, you know, look, there was a series on that Carol O'Connor and um, Howard Rollins were in that ran for many years. I don't know if they're going to remake it. It could be remade with a proper twist, you know, with a contemporary twist. Hollywood is so eager to, to remake everything. And when you've got a property that has name brand, they look to reimagine it or just and anything you can do to to get publicity or an audience to watch it will do. And uh, listen, I'm not saying, again, Spielberg's doing West Side Story because he honestly feels like he can redo it in a contemporary way. And and so it will be really interesting. It'll be like 60 years after the, the first one came out. And, you know, I mean, but when you watch, uh, just to, to go back to West Side Story, I mean, listen, I understand Natalie Wood was not Latina. And she didn't sing her own songs. And so I'm sure Spielberg's will be very politically correct, where back in that age, in that era, things were very different. So uh, we'll see. I don't know if In the Heat of the Night will be remade. Um, but, you know, there's probably an interesting spin to still be had on it. Okay. Well, some great choices so far. So what is going to be number two? 
Well, I was going to go number two with a movie that I had worked on. But I mean, honestly, because the family legacy is so strong, I'm not I'm not sure any of the pictures I've worked on compete with any of them. And, uh, you know, as we talked about, uh, I mean, The Magnificent Seven or Great Escape and and Pink Panther. But I got to put one in there for myself. I mean, you know, (laughs) I think one of them would be uh, apropos. And I mean, the obvious choice when you look at my IMDb is The Matrix. So, I mean, I would put The Matrix if I'm putting up pictures like The Apartment, West Side Story, in the Heat of the Night. I better come strong and correct with a a, a strong film that I've worked on. Uh, And and The Matrix would be it. But it's not really unknown. I would say um, uh, Black Mass is is a terrific movie, an underrated picture and if you haven't seen it, it's a picture worth seeing and masterfully directed by Scott Cooper, who is, I think, one of our best directors working today. He does not compromise. He does not compromise his vision. And it may not always be mainstream. And you may not always feel good coming out of his movies. But for him, the experience, the story he's telling combined with the experience that he wants you to have, you know, it's not always feel good time. He, he forces you to reflect and dig deep working with him. And, uh, and uh, on that film, that was a, a great experience for me. And, and fortunately, um, you know, we've become really good friends since he's gearing up to make another movie now. And I wish I could work on it, but I'm booked. So uh, I'm, I'm certain we will work together again. But yeah, I would say Black Mass. Yeah, definitely. He's been a a huge influence on me as well with a lot of his movies that are very uncompromising and he definitely left an imprint on a movie that I'm currently working on getting into production now which was very much in the style after I saw Out of the Furnace so when you do see him tell him thank you very much from me I will Out of the Furnace is that that's it's a it's a deeply intense picture and oh, uh, yeah. after you see it you may just want to like Go hide in a, co- a closet for an hour or two and just, you know, come to grips with your thoughts. Definitely. But, uh, but it's, 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 it's also a, a really terrific film. Okay. Well, I guess after all that, we have counted down to the big number one. Number one is <laughs> no drum roll necessary. Uh, <laughs> number one is Some Like It Hot. And, oh, uh, yeah. Some Like It Hot, made in 1959 with, again, Jack Lemmon. And Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe, directed by Billy Wilder. It's a movie that you could see that picture time and time again. It's made of a certain era. I mean, it's it's in black and white, even though they had color. Uh, but it w- that was done on purpose, so you really couldn't judge the makeup that uh, Jack and Tony were in during the film. It's just it, it's just a movie that is still very funny and it's just a joy to watch i've seen it so many times and it's a remote drop for me you know it's on wherever it's at you just stop and watch it i i love that movie i love that picture i i I know it's it's been seen and and it's been lauded by afi as a i think the top comedy of all time so it's not a sexy pick for number one but I'm a mainstream kind of guy, and like, if I got to pick one, I'm going to go with Some Like It Hot. No, justified. Yeah. Justified in, in choosing that. It is a timeless movie. 
And a massive congratulations to you for actually getting them in numerical order. <laughs> I think you might actually be the second guest to do that. I, I think it's uh, him and Jay Oliva are currently neck and neck for, <laughs> yeah. for the rest. It's always the Warner Brothers guys, unless your name is Bill. Uh. <laughs> but Richard, uh, it's absolutely fantastic having you on today. And thank you so much for freeing up so much of your time uh, over these uh, two episodes. And uh, we know that you've got some amazing projects coming on that you can't mention yet, but we're hoping you're going to come back and tell mm-hmm. us about them when you can. Because uh, obviously your future is just absolutely catapulted forward. And oh, uh, we you. look forward to seeing what you'll do. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the screen. And we look forward to hearing what's in the box. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? 17 weeks on and I'm still playing air guitar. It's, it's amazing. Uh, this has actually become the favorite part of the show for most of the people who actually listen. <laughs> <laughs> the I mean, you guys, are, you, you guys are pretty good, but I don't know. Maybe, you know, Neil, Neil may need to like step in here and, you know, we might need to you, you, uh, copyright that and, and uh, <laughs> you know, get, get some revenue generating for Pottywood from the What's in the Box theme. Yeah. Yeah, we should <laughs> put we're, it we're out. Working then. on the T-shirts. No. There you go. <laughs> we get a T-shirt. We expect you to wear a "What's in the Box" T-shirt <laughs> on set. Ri- <laughs> on set, Richard. Oh, didn't didn't Justin Timberlake and um, Andy Samberg already have that covered? But you know, I mean, you know. Oh, we, we, yes. We can Dick let our box. mind flow. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We can let our mind. Steve, explain what's in the box while I dig out your selection. Okay, well, what's in the box is a part of the show where Andy tries to improve my movie education by trying to get me away from video games and more kind of mainstream movies which feature car chases and explosions. Now, he's going to pick out a name of a film that he certified fresh from Rotten Tomatoes out of the box, and if I haven't seen it, then I have to go away and watch it the night before we record the next episode. If I have seen it, then we just keep picking out names until we find one that I haven't. So, Andy, what do you have for us? Okay, well, I'm not taking any chances this week because every time I've picked out one on its own, you've seen one and I have to go rummaging again. So I've picked five out, just to be sure. Five? Bloody hell. And some of them I'm even sure that you have actually seen. First one I've picked out is The Lost Boys. Yep. Which you have seen because I introduced you to it. You you guys didn't introduce me to that film. I'd already seen that film years before, but we did actually watch it at yours one night because Kate wanted to watch it. Oh, okay, fair enough. Ooh, All right. There you go. You're so polite. You could have just said I've seen it. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, you come on. You must have seen Total Recall, the uh, Arnie version. Oh yeah, the Arnie version. I haven't seen the Colin Farrell one yet, but no, definitely oh, seen this the Arnie. This is it. We've done two down. Will Good job, Aston Mars. With, with the third oh, my one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate when you do that Arnie impression. Okay, um, okay. The third one is Midnight Express from 1978. Midnight Express. No, no, I haven't. Oh, phew! Thank God for Oof, that. dude, dude, dude. Oh my, oh boy. You know. <laughs> I have put him through you're, some torture with some oh, movies. God, yeah, you're, that's the yeah, that's the smuggling one, isn't it? You're going to be in the box after you watch that, man. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> 
what's the what's the the other one that I was thinking of? I think it's like uh, like an escape movie, which has got a similar name, Midnight Run. Yes. No. Yeah. Uh, Midnight Run is pick, brilliant. Can I watch pick, that instead? <laughs> no. You couldn't pick two completely different movies if you wanted to. By the way, you, <laughs> so you have, you haven't seen Midnight Run? No, I haven't seen that either. Oh uh, well, here's what you do. Oh. Watch Midnight Express and then immediately put on Midnight Run right afterwards because if you if you live with your thoughts after Midnight Express, you know you're you're going to be a changed man after that. And, and, and but wow, I remember seeing that Andrew the first time, and that you know there are certain movies right where you watch and you have an experience and you remember that experience. Well, Steve. Get ready for Midnight Express, and and uh, you know, don't plan to be near any people after you watch it either for a while. You know, like, just just. Well, the, the trouble is, I usually watch these movies with my girlfriend. We get into bed together. We put the oh. TV on at the bottom of the bed, and she for weeks now she's been going, "Oh, why do you never pick out anything that's fun?" She's going to absolutely adore me after I tell her what we're going to watch next week. I think more likely she's going to leave you after she watches it. <laughs> she probably you know? is, yeah. I mean, no, 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 no disrespect. Andrew's given, given you, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an unbelievable movie. Yes, you've got to watch it and you will, you will be changed after you watch it. Yes. But, well, it, so far uh, on the list of uh, the torments, it started with Casualties of War. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, right. yeah. yeah. Then you had to watch that movie about uh, vaginal teeth, called oh. Teeth. That I, had, yeah. I don't know which one was worse, to be honest. Well, teeth was just an unpleasant your... film, but Casualties of well, War was, oof. Hold your breath, darling. Midnight Express is on its way. <laughs> so next week, uh, we will look forward to hearing your thoughts. On Midnight Express. Yeah, it's not really going to be thoughts. It's more going to be therapy. Very true. Uh, but, Richard, again, thank you very much. We look forward to having you on the show again. Uh, thank you for all your generous time. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. And I, I, I got to hear what Steve has to say about Midnight Express. So I'll be, I'll be tuning in. Oh, you will. Oh, you can tune in. We probably won't have a guest that week because Steve will be crying. <laughs> Steve. Steve, oh. my goodness, you gotta like. Uh, I'm telling you, I don't know if the girlfriend really is gonna want to watch oh. this one with you. But I'm gonna have to watch it on my own now. Too. Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. best. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just make sure you've got a a pane of glass between you and the girlfriend. Come in <laughs> handy. Oh boy! <laughs> oh, my God. Right. So uh, that Thank is the guys. end of this show. Thank you, Richard, and uh, we will see everyone at Pottywood after dark. Yes, and in the meantime, don't forget, you can reach us out on Facebook and Twitter, both at Pottywood. You can find us on the subreddit of r slash Pottywood, and Pottywood is now available on all major podcast releases, including Audible. But for now, I bid you adieu. No funny line this week. You just said it.